And like, sorry to use that buzzword, but there are just times when you're with people and the heteronormative assumptions like undergird everything that you're saying and doing. (laughs) And like, you can't say that because people would be like, what? (laughs) They're like, I'm just making pancakes. And you're like, but you're making them so straightly. (laughs) Yeah, you're doing it in this really straight way that's limiting to my queer identity or whatever. Like, and, and it, it, that is a thing. Oh my God. I've so, so, so been there for oppressive pancakes. <laughs> yeah. But we don't want oppressive pancakes. We want together breakfast. Yes. This is Queers at the End of the World, the podcast where we're stuck overnight in an intergalactic museum and feel honestly pretty excited to sleep inside the giant Martian spider skeleton. I'm your host, Nino. And I'm your host, Nat. And today we're talking about Steven Universe. This show ran on Cartoon Network from 2013 until 2019. And it was followed up in the same storyline with Steven Universe, the movie and Steven Universe Futures. Before we get to the plot, we wanted to remind you to check out the Queers at the End of the World Patreon at patreon.com slash queers at the end of the world. If becoming a patron doesn't work for you right now, though, for any reason, you can always support us by sharing the show. So, okay, Steven Universe has lots of plot, and we're going to stay pretty high level here, partly to avoid any big bombshell spoilers, and partly because there's no way we're going to get to talk about all of this in detail. Mm-hmm. There will for sure be some spoilers. And if you've never seen the show, I highly recommend giving yourself the chance to enjoy it with totally new eyes. But we'll do our best to avoid giving away the big plot twists in the final seasons. So the show follows Steven Universe, a young boy who lives in Beach City, which is a kind of fantasy version of the beach and boardwalk towns of the Jersey Shore. Steven lives with the Crystal Gems, three super-powered female-presenting aliens who have been on Earth for thousands of years, ever since their own planet, Homeworld, tried to colonize Earth way back before humans were even really rubbing rocks and sticks together to make fire. These days, the three gems, Garnet, Amethyst, and Pearl, live in an ancient temple beach bungalow and go around fighting gem-based monsters. As the show progresses, Steven starts going on missions with the gems, and we learn that the gems are rock-based alien life forms that project the humanoid forms we see as manifestations of light. Steven's mother, Rose Quartz, was the leader of the gem rebellion back when Earth was still a colony of their homeworld, but thousands of years have passed, and she fell in love with a human named Greg Universe and decided to give up her physical form in order to make their son Steven. She looms really large, both physically and in the lives of all these characters, and including the Gems and Steven and Greg. They all had to kind of come to terms a long time ago with the fact that Steven is not Rose. Even though when they get hurt, their Gems just sort of re-manifest a new form, that's not what Steven is. He's not a different form of Rose. He's his own half-human, half-alien person. So now in between hanging out with his van life-loving musician dad, Greg, and training for combat with his best friend and ultimate soulmate, Connie Maheshwaran, and a host of other Beach City locals, Steven and the Crystal Gems save the world over and over, fight a new gem war, and try to grow and change and move on with their lives. Steven Universe is so good. So good. Should we talk a little bit about why we wanted to talk about Steven Universe on the show? Sure, yeah. I mean, I guess... Part of where Queers at the End of the World came from in my head was I was driving some friends home from Black Lives Matter protests in 2020, and they'd been protesting all day, and it was really intense. And I had not been there, but I had shown up to take people home. 
And these folks were super tired and had had this incredibly hard day. And I was sort of like, you know, what are you going to do to relax and take care of yourself? And they were like, we're going to watch Steven Universe. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, yes. (laughs) And just like be held in the arms of that show. And so, you know, it has this kind of genesis in that moment of like Steven Universe as like the original piece of how queer apocalyptic media can like help us through this apocalypse, which is of course what in my wildest dreams this show is. Oh my God. I didn't even know that. I feel so lucky that through you, I got to find out about this show and go on the massive errand that is watching all of it because (laughs) I too feel held in its arms. Yeah. Cannot say how many times I've cried Mm. tears of joy and also just bittersweet longing. And there's just so much in it that makes me feel so seen. Totally. So much of the writing feels so very queer and in ways that I think are really unusual and different from other shows where I've experienced a sense of queer representation. It kind of goes beyond that into some territory that feels incredibly personal. And I think it's true for a lot of viewers, actually. Um, I know you really identify with this show too, right? Yeah, strongly. <laughs> and it's so personal for for everyone. I think people who love this show find something that they need in it. You know, like, I think in some ways, it's like, it really celebrates the ensemble that's creating it. There's so many people's life stories in these characters and in the things that happen to them from the side characters all the way up to the main characters like I was reading that the fish stew pizza family like one of the boardwalk families who ran the pizza store in Beach City are named the pizzas and <laughs> and the um, the pizzas are based on the family of uh, Ian Jones Quarterly who is the supervising director and It feels that way, like each of the characters feels kind of intimately drawn from someone's experience. And there's like a very wide variety of people making the show. So you have all these little very true feeling experiences of what it's like to be a person at the intersection of the many identities that kind of make up each of the characters. And I mean, maybe that's part of how how it kind of connects with so many people. Yes. Okay. So, you know, before before doing this episode, we said we each get to pick one or two episodes to talk about. There's no way we could get into everything. I mean, honestly, I think we're going to spend like quite a lot of time talking about just a couple episodes here. So I wanted to kind of kick off with an episode that happens right at the beginning of the show. It's episode three, actually, and it's called Cheeseburger Backpack. So just for folks listening who haven't seen this, can you describe the backpack and what it's about? Well, my memory of this episode is that in it, Stephen is going to go on his first mission with the gems. Yep. And he's really excited to go. And he is also really excited because he has just received in the mail a cheeseburger backpack that he ordered. And it's shaped like a cheeseburger. It's got all these pockets that kind of go like there's like a cheese pocket and a tomato pocket and a burger pocket and a bun pocket and he's very excited so he can fit a lot in there and he's like piling in all this stuff that he wants to take with him on the mission and that's kind of the setup and then they go on the mission exactly exactly you know one of the things that i find so charming and absolutely wonderful about steven universe in general is he doesn't really come preloaded with magical powers right There's some sense that he's magical and we know he can do things, but he's really in this state of trying to figure himself out, learn how to use his abilities. And at this point in the show, he doesn't really have any control. 
So the backpack is kind of him being like, okay, I don't know really how to use my powers, but what I can do is order this cheeseburger backpack and bring a lot of resources on the mission (laughs) (laughs) so I can be useful to my team. And out of the many Steven Universe episodes, I picked this one because one of the things that I find really meaningful to me personally about this show is the fact that Steven Universe does not go to school. Mm, Oh my God, I'm sure that is deep for you to like see that represented. (laughs) Yes, it's like queer representation, but also unschooling representation Mm -hmm. is included in this show, which is like unbelievably rare. And also when unschoolers or homeschoolers are represented on screen, which does happen from time to time, Usually it's people trapped in Christian fundamentalist cults, you know, where people are being taught like the rapture is around the corner or like evolution's not a thing or I don't even know what's going on in those groups. Because while I did not go to school, I, like Steven, experienced what folks call unschooling. Mm -hmm. Um, which tends to be more a practice of school at home carried out by folks who are adherents to a kind of radical pedagogy that sort of interrogates the usefulness of school. And it's kind of like if homeschooling is typically pointing to folks who want to control the content of what their kids are learning, Mm. unschooling is more about form than about content. Unschoolers are basically saying the way things are taught in school is exploitative, limiting, and not conducive to learning. Mm. So the shared idea is learn by doing, the world is our classroom. Learning isn't something you go to a special building to do. It's something you do all the time. Mm. So that was my framework growing up. And I've never seen a show that represents that in any form until watching Steven Universe. And it's funny because I feel like a lot of shows have children in them that are just like inexplicably have nothing to do all day, (laughs) (laughs) except for like have adventures, but they don't talk about it. And and, and actually Steven Universe like is explicitly like Steven does not go to school. He knows he doesn't go to school. His best friend Connie does go to school. And so they talk about that difference sometimes. Exactly. Well, I feel like part of that, and this could be another thing to acknowledge about Steven Universe generally and what makes it different, is in other shows or YA where kids are magical and for some reason they don't seem to have any responsibilities except doing magic, going on adventures, and being awesome. (laughs) That, to me, seems to come from the fact that most of those kids are on a trajectory that is in some way, shape, or form reflective of the hero's journey. And the narrative of heroics kind of substitutes in for any of the other things you do in life. It's like, okay, now this is more important because you're the chosen one who's here to save the world. So like, whatever about school. But in this show, it's really about living your daily life. Mm Mm-hmm. It's about knowing that you're not the hero, that everything isn't about you. Mm. Steven Universe has so many episodes that touch on that. Not this episode specifically, but there are definitely moments in the show where Steven has to confront his own desire to be the protagonist, the oh, hero. Yeah. Yes, for and, sure. And have that resisted by his family. 
Mm-hmm. So, I mean, looping back to this episode where Stephen's ordering this backpack and going on a mission, I mean, the whole structure of the episode is like so fundamental to like the way it is to be an unschooled kid. I'll unpack that a little bit. So episode starts off with, you know, he's getting this backpack in the mail. Mm-hmm. And already I'm like in the mindset that I grew up in, the kind of unschooling reality that you're in, which is that you're kind of isolated off alone with your parents. Mm. And uh, like, I, I don't say that in terms of a value judgment of it. It could sound negative, but, you know, good or bad, most of what Steven does is off in this isolated area on the beach with the crystal gems. Right. The postman is like the only one who knows how to find him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, if there's another postman, I'll never get mail again. <laughs> Exactly. And, you know, bear with me for this, because it may sound like kind of in the weeds at first, but one of the definitional experiences, at least for me, and I I would extend this to a lot of the kids I knew growing up, the idea of going to the store and being part of society with your parents is not a thing. So it's like, when you interact with economy, you do it by kind of temporarily reaching outside the bubble. And it's funny to say bubble because, of course, bubbles are a a significant part of Steven Universe. Yeah, yeah. One of Steven's powers is he can create this protective bubble. But it's like instead of taking your family out of your home and being part of the world surrounding you, you kind of reach outside the bubble and pull things inside of it. Hmm. Yeah, and the way he meets Connie, right? When they first meet, doesn't he like bring her into his bubble? And that's like, he does. They get stuck in his bubble all day, and she's like, that was scary, but also really cool. <laughs> well, I mean, I feel like that's exactly it. Like, she's also someone who's isolated and lonely for a whole totally different set of reasons. Right. She's um, like a really, really rigorous student and on a really tight schedule. Her parents are pretty intense and controlling. Yeah, she has a lot of parental encouragement to succeed. And she's like gotten a lot of positive reinforcement, I would imagine, Mm. from being at school and being smart and performing and is kind of like someone that you might call a nerd, Mm -hmm. right? But then like inside the bubble, it's like this representation of like the kind of creativity and magic that comes from the freedom of not being mentally constrained by school, Mm. It's literally like you're on a magical journey. Like you and your parents are doing all these incredibly fun and exciting things that involve learning and personal growth and like exploration and the unknown and imagination. But then it's all happening in this bubble. Mm. And that bubble like can't interact with the town on the other side of the wall. Right. You're like in or out. <laughs> or like you carry yeah. it with you in some ways. And you can't, right. yeah, you can't get out of the bubble is part of what I hear you saying. It's totally like that. So he's ordered this backpack, right? And the reason he ordered the backpack is he wants to go on the mission with the gems. Mm-hmm. So the thing to say about this is like when you don't go to school, you never did, you never will, you have to figure out what do I do with myself today? (laughs) Right? And unschooling is very much about that. It's about you just exist. The world is here. You got to work out what to do. Right. And the way that that typically plays out is through your parents, 
through work, through actually participating in whatever the adults around you are interested in and doing. And I've seen this all the time with other homeschooled and unschooled kids, meet folks whose parents run a farm and all of the kids in the family run their own part of the farm. If you love the thing you're doing, you'll use your considerable human intellect and whatever level of cognitive development you're at to find like this meaningful thing to do with your day. Mm -hmm. And of course, unschooling parents do work with their kids actively a lot of the time on this. So they don't just like let them lay around all day. Right. Usually it's like, if you're going to be passive, then like, can you please come help with this other thing? Right, right, right. And so sometimes kids will like develop their own small business or a, an art making practice because they are like, I don't want to do that. I want to do this, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, sure. So all of that being said, what I saw in this episode is Stephen doing the exact thing that I consider that to me what learning and education is, mm. which is I want to be included in the adult world that surrounds me and is the circumstances of my life. And to do that, I need to find a way to participate. So he does that. He talks them into letting him go. Pearl is kind of dubious about it because she's really a stickler for safety. But then Garnet, who's the other person in this episode who's in a more parental role, she's like, yeah, let's go. We're going to work it out. And I felt so seen by it because it's so hard to explain that to people that have been to school. To explain that moment of the parent's decision to allow the kid to come do something dangerous because they need to grow and change. That and just also like what you do when you don't go to school. Yeah. (laughs) It's hard. Missions. I mean, you're making it sound pretty good, Nat. (laughs) Well, well, I'm sad to say I didn't get to go on any magical missions when I was a kid, but you did have well, a lot of gnome friends, though. I did have gnome friends, and <laughs> I, I will say that when you're a kid and your parents engage seriously with your interests, it is really magical. Yeah, like I do remember once my dad is an electrical engineer, and we did a project once where we had those treasure trolls. Are those which, the trolls oh, with with gems in their tummies? 100%. Oh, this is so this is so apropos. That's where Steven is. I know. I know. He like super reminds me of Treasure Trolls, which I was obsessed with Treasure Trolls. I mean, I think Rebecca Sugar is the same age as you, so it's entirely possible that Steven is in some ways connected aesthetically to Treasure Trolls. Well, I I would not be at all surprised by that and also like I I just I feel like a treasure troll. But like <laughs> We made a little like dollhousey thing my sister and I did for our treasure trolls. And my dad like took us through this whole thing of wiring up an LED to like be the ceiling light mm-hmm. inside the little box that we were making their like house. Mm-hmm. And it was so cool. Like that's so magical. And I I feel like, you know, obviously it's not saving the world to do that, but it has the same like emotional quality as as the things that Steven Universe does. Well, it's and it's interesting when you talk about saving the world because, of course, like one of the really cool things about this episode is that the mission that Steven goes on fails and it fails because he forgot something that he should have packed in his cheeseburger backpack that he left behind. And so we talk about like saving the world versus not saving the world. The ultimate goal of this adventure actually does not end up being achievable specifically because they brought this child along. (laughs) Right. 
Well, I, I, and that, I mean, some things he pulls out of the backpack are super useful. Right. He pulls a bagel sandwich out and like these crystal slugs all go to eat the bagel sandwich to clear the path, <laughs> you know. And he thinks outside the box in these delightful ways that are just so real and, and so wonderful to me. Mm-hmm. But then at the end, the way that the episode plays out when they realize that he's forgotten the item that he was supposed to bring to put on this altar to save this building from disintegrating is like, okay, we're stepping off the hero's journey. Mm. And like for me, it's not just stepping off of heroics. It's stepping off of heteronormativity Mm. and a related word, which I love, called chrononormativity. Right. So – Life is not about learning the skills, deploying the skills, succeeding, overcoming, achieving, reaching success, being a hero, coming back and being celebrated. Mm -hmm. It's about you get to go do it now. Mm -hmm. You get to try and fail. And the way we define success, the way we understand our goals is about something other than achievements. Mm -hmm. And like there's there's kind of a conversation among the gems throughout this episode about that. And then at the end, it's not about failure. It's about going home. Yeah. The building crumbles into the sea and then they just swim home on the raft, right? Yes. More magical power is just paddling. And I love that. Right. Well, I, what's so great about that raft is he actually pulls that out early in the episode and it looks like it's going to be so, so useful and great, right. but he like throws it in this like rushing waterfall and it immediately just goes over the side. And they're like, well, and they're like, three in bed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And again, like two out of three ain't bad. That is an unschooling mentality. And that is also like my mentality mm-hmm. when I teach. Mm-hmm. It's okay to fail. And like, that's something teachers say a lot, but- They don't always mean it. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. And this is an episode that outlines the framework of how to mean it. Mm. Yes, 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 yes. So thinking about the show in this context of like apocalypse and utopia, I think one of the most utopian things about the show, it is committed to like exemplifying what it looks like for people to just take really, really good care of each other and themselves. Yes. Yeah. It's really like the aspirational bubble. Right. I mean, having been an unschooled kid and part of that happening during when my family kind of went through this process of preparing for the year 2000. Right. Folks listening who tuned in to the first episode of season one heard me talk about this. Sometimes I try not to think about it because it was such a weird experience for me to be so engaged and snarled in with my parents' lives, my parents' interests, my parents being the foundation that I stood on to find things to do with myself and learn and interact with in the world. And then having that all shift towards this like doomsday apocalypticism around technology and stocking a bunker and like doing all this stuff to prepare in case something terrible happened. Things got really freaking weird in your bubble. Yeah. But one thing that comes to mind for me is that in my sort of aspirational critical utopia imaginings, when I think about a post-apocalyptic community in in the sort of world-building sense, I often feel a kind of joy to imagine that like school isn't a thing anymore. 
Mm-hmm. And people have to reconstitute education in this way of like, we all learn by working on the things that we need to do to be together and live and survive and be okay and be happy. Yeah. Like, this is what it could look like if we were all working toward a kind of good faith shared space of like mutual needs being met. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, even, yeah. even though the characters are by no means perfect, people's foibles cause all sorts of trouble. But they also have access to this sense of like the thing that should be guiding the decisions that are being made is like love for themselves and love for other people and like love for the world. So yes, I think that some iterations that could be kind of difficult to watch because you're like, just like, oh, the world's not like that. But in this, somehow the magic of the show is that it's presented in a way where it's like, oh, that's what that would look like. Okay, maybe this can show me how to do that, you know, and or, or even just like, that's what that would look like. That feels good. It feels good to see that happening. Oh my gosh. It really reminds me of, you know how there's like a thing where once you've had certain fruit and vegetables, maybe that you've only had from the grocery store (laughs) and you're like, like cantaloupe, you're like, this isn't good. Right. (laughs) Like you've had it in fruit salad. But then if you ever get the chance to eat the super most deliciously ripe, fresh version of that, Mm -hmm. and I've had this experience specifically with asparagus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Once you've had it fresh, your tolerance for eating it from the store is higher because you can tune in the memory of eating it fresh when you eat the one that's been sitting there for a couple of days. Oh, that's not where I thought you were going to go with this. <laughs> we have a different response to fresh fruits. <laughs> uh, no, I will. That's one hundred percent a thing where I am really tolerant of like mediocre fruit and vegetables that I've had fresh because I'm like I can taste the parts of it that taste like the fresh version, and it helps me view them with less pickiness. But I was going to use that as a metaphor to say like that's what Steven Universe does for me, mm. like. My bubble in many ways was a fucked up bubble, but like this conversation is enabling me to talk about the elements of it that were really positive. Yeah, 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 yeah. And Steven Universe lets you see that. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Dude, that's incredibly beautiful. I really feel this thing that you're saying of watching Steven Universe and and getting to see like positive, nuanced, true to life representation of something that's been painful for me personally on the screen in the show, which brings me to another episode that I know we wanted to talk about, which is one called Mr. Greg. And it's also fairly early on in the show. And it deals with a fractured relationship between Steven's bio dad, whose name is Greg and Pearl, who is one of the crystal gems and who's also one of Steven's mother, Rose Quartz's lovers. So both Greg and Pearl were lovers of Rose Quartz. Yeah, let's do it. So in this episode, Greg takes Stephen to New York City on like a big fancy vacation. He's just like got a windfall of money. And Stephen insists that they bring Pearl. Greg is like, what? Like, we don't get along. And Pearl is like, I don't know if I should do that. But they they go, the three of them, because they love Stephen and they want to do what he wants to do. You know, Greg is like very willing to sort of just like have a good time with her. And she's like, no. Like, don't touch me. Don't sing to me. Don't dance with me. It's also a musical episode, which is... Amazing. Amazing. So, (laughs) and then there is this moment. And I think if you were just watching the first episodes of the show, you might not have a lot of respect for Pearl at first because she sort of seems like the sort of stickler librarian character or whatever. Right. But as it turns out, she's actually like so, so much more complicated than that. Like she's a person who was kind of trained to see herself as inferior. And she like broke out of that and, you know, became this amazing, innovative, like incredible fighter but she's deeply devoted to rose and she's Mm -hmm. kind of dealing in this moment with like this was my great love and then in the end she didn't choose me she chose 
to cease to exist and make this kid and like she chose this other person and it's about Pearl's self-concept it's about jealousy and ultimately it's about Pearl and Greg connecting over their shared loss of Rose Quartz and being like the thing that we have in common is who loved us and who we both love she's gone so how do we connect over this massive hole in our lives and we have to admit that neither one of us has the full picture and open ourselves up to each other's version of her and to me that is so so moving you know i lost some pretty deeply important people to me in my early 20s and trying to share the memory of someone with others when you have like your version of them and then there's the version of them that maybe belongs to their parents or other close friends of theirs, that can be like extremely painful. Is it painful because the other people's memories doesn't match yours and shows the person in a negative light and you don't want to see them that way? Not a negative light, just a different light. I mean, I think when somebody dies, you don't have them anymore. You just have the version of them that is sort of saved in your memory, you know, and Uh. it's incomplete. And I think it can be really threatening to have other people's versions of a person put in front of your face. I feel like that's one of the things that's happening for Pearl in this episode is the version she has of Rose Quartz in her heart and her memory would not have done this to her. And yet did. Right. Yeah, it's like she has like a representation of Rose that's a reflection of her more devoted and rigid personality. Yeah, and and also, you know, people bring different things out in other people. Like, you're a different version of yourself with different friends. And I would say most of the time, at least one big component of what I love about other people is the person I am with them. Yeah. And it's not like, oh, you bring out the real me. It's like you bring out a me that I enjoy to be when I am with you, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And I think it can be really hard when someone dies to accept that, like, all of those versions of them were real and none of them is like the true person. Right. And I think that that episode is like, it's so soothing to see the two of them decide that that's okay. And I think so much Mm -hmm. of this series is about like deciding it's okay for things not to fit and to be fucked up and to be like both and neither nor, (laughs) you know, like – all of the different versions of Rose Quartz are all true. And some of them are great and some of them aren't so great. And yet like the fact of the grief becomes this engine for connection and for finding more ways to make family. And like that is so soothing and meaningful to me as a person who like has longed for that and hasn't necessarily been able to do it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. One thing I was thinking about is the fact that the gems are immortal. Right. Like if somebody gets bashed up, their body is light, it disappears for a little while, and they spawn a new one, which results in like all kinds of cool, like different iterations of people's costumes. Yes. But Rose Quartz is unique among the gems in that she has found a way to die. Yeah. And I feel like this episode in many ways is like there are so many things that death means. Mm. Like it results in this particular hashing out of humanness and bonding between Greg, who is human, and Pearl, who, like, isn't human, but then is, like, getting to kind of have this, like, really, really fucking human experience. Oh, man, yeah, yeah. Like, the whole show is about thinking about humanness as something that's important and worth saving. Yeah, right. So part of that is 
death and the fact that it results in messy unresolved grief and messy unresolved relationships among the people that loved the person that's now gone. Yeah. And there's some flashback episodes where you also get to see like earlier versions of it where Pearl is just like either trying to show him that she's more important to Rose than he is or like there's an episode where Steven is a baby where Pearl is just like enraged at him (laughs) the whole time. Yeah. And I love that episode yeah. so much. I mean, you would think that these immortal beings would deal with their feelings on an immortal time scale. And I think, you know, when we end up meeting some other gems that have never left the homeworld, that is kind of true. But these gems, because they are on Earth, because they are in Earth relationships, like they move in multiple timelines. And one of the timelines that they move in is human life. So Pearl gets over it in about 14 years, right? <laughs> which sounds right on time to me. <laughs> like grief takes a while, man. Yeah. I mean, I feel like this is also a moment of her acceptance of how human bodies work. Mm-hmm. Like there's some episodes sort of early on with Steven as a kid where I think there's some suspicion on the part of the gems that Rose is in there yeah and there's actually there's this sort of threat of violence of like what if they try to separate rose from steven and i just feel like it's so real where there isn't this sort of like overnight assimilation yeah it's hard for them to understand humans and pearls knows that steven exists and is not rose but this is like the much later emotional iteration of that Mm -hmm. which God, I feel like that's so true to grieving where someone dies, but then there's like echoes and echoes and echoes Mm -hmm. of the parts of it that aren't the actual instance, but the emotional messiness of conceptualizing them later. Yeah. Dealing with impermanence. (laughs) I'm going to make a really big statement here, but like dealing with impermanence, I feel like is so much what figuring out human life is about. (laughs) And like... As you say, this show is about loving being human as like a concept. Yeah. And that's the concept, you know, and which is something I think that ties this show to Octavia Butler. And, you know, this is the queer ethics, I think, of this show is this commitment to love and to change. Right. Yeah, yeah. And like in sending that message, the show also doesn't get into any amount of ecofascism or nature purity. Yeah. Like it's about the interconnectedness of everyone on earth, all of the organisms, including Jersey Shore, boardwalk towns, and New York City manifests here, and there's- Empire City. Empire City, you know? (laughs) But like, it's not this thing where it's like, and the earth has been polluted by humans. No, not at all. We're fucked. You're doing a Ronaldo voice for that, which I appreciate. (laughs) Oh, totally. I mean, I feel like Ronaldo would be an advocate of that, like, in a darker version of the show. Mm. But, I mean, literally even someone like Ronaldo, who you want to talk about somebody that seems vulnerable to red pill rhetoric on the internet. Yeah, he's kind of the representative of that on the show. He's like this dude to the blog who's always trying to figure out what's up with the crystal gems. Very suspicious and kind of combative in some ways. and Wants to see himself as the hero. Yeah. Yeah, he's narcissistic. Yeah. But even Ronaldo gets so much grace in the show. Yes. Certainly not to say, like, let's give Red Pillars all the grace and tolerance that beautiful mold that blooms into a million flowers when the sun comes <laughs> out should get. Like, those are two very different things. <laughs> well, 
I mean, in the world of the show, Ronaldo is deserving of that. And it's not that one wants to hang out with him all the time. Like, he's kind of tough company. But, like, there's an episode where Ronaldo kind of, like, tries to become a crystal gem. He's, like, it's, like, about sort of, like, white, (laughs) you know, white boy's sense of grievance about not being oppressed enough. And they're, like, we want to be in your gay club. And if we can't be in your gay club, we're going to burn down. Straight drive. Yep. (laughs) When Steven kind of brings it to him, Ronaldo's, like, I'm hurting you i'm sorry you know i need to change i know i mean just thinking like the mold blooming into flowers episode that i was referencing a second ago is similarly about another kind of narcissistic male character in the show which is lars Mm -hmm. and there's a an episode where lars is trying to like be friends with the cool kids Mm -hmm. and he's really just being a total jerk yeah. And they end up in this situation where they drive out to this area where there's this like kind of dangerous mold sort of algae stuff swirling around in a pond. And it's obviously a metaphor for like teenage boys, like toxic masculinity. Mm. This threatening organism that feels really scary and negative and is kind of creeping over everything and it kind of encompasses the bodies of the cool kids until they're like encased in it. Mm-hmm. And then like you get to witness this moment of Steven and Lars are like, oh my God, like it's trying to overtake us. Drive this car up to the this overlook. And then when the sun breaks through the clouds, this like slime mold or algae or whatever it is just blooms into these floating flowers that just go out into the sky. Mm. Toxic masculinity is eradicated and turned into flowers. I couldn't be happier. (laughs) And I mean, sitting aside the idea of that being a total fantasy, the idea of flowers blooming as a result of affording grace when it's possible to do that is so comforting. Yeah. And I think also there's this sense of the world as just like full of mystery and interrelationships that you can learn about through experience. That's in some ways what feels like the utopian practice of the show to be like, okay, what would it look like if Ronaldo were to hear that? And then instead of responding with defensiveness, were to respond with his sense of his own community responsibility in mind. Yeah. Just adding on to that, I feel like there's also kind of an internal mystery and Mm. an internal possibility and sparkling magic that is precisely associated with what might happen if you say what you want and ask for what you need. Like asking that question is an exploration both of the person who does the asking, because asking people is kind of a way of like giving grace to someone. Yeah. Like you're trusting someone with a vulnerability of making an an actual statement of like either that hurt me or I need this from you or this is happening to me right now and I need your help to resolve it. Mm. And then the recipient who often in the show is a threatening person also gets to enter into that place of mystery rather than the show ever just automatically making assumptions about what happens in those kinds of interactions. Mm -hmm. In a more traditional sort of good guys versus bad guys narrative, that kind of story is built on knowing that if you said something, quote unquote, bad guy, we already know what the response is going to be. But in this show, we don't know. And that lack of knowing is magical because sometimes what comes back is so lovely and honest. Mm -hmm. And other times it's like you learn something about that character that is their obstacle to connecting. Right. 
and why they can't. Right. Because it's not, it's not like it always results in like immediate positive, like completely secure (laughs) person response. I mean, I'm thinking of like Lapis, who's a character who's introduced in the first season, who's had a really different experience of Earth because for her, she's a gem who was trapped there for thousands of years and in the war was just kind of a pawn in this whole big game, neither a rebel nor like a committed fighter, but ended up being kind of used by both sides. And in the beginning, like she's very threatening and, and Steven can't just say to her, I need this from you because she's not in a place where she can hear that. And the show has room for that, which I appreciate because if it was just like, Every time, all you have to do is be like, but what about yeah. our interconnectedness and love? <laughs> like, you know? I know. And I they know. were just like, ah, oh, shucks, you're right. <laughs> well, no, I agree with that totally. I, I mean, I'm so glad you brought up Lapis because just thinking of some of the things that happened in her storyline, you know, I really found a lot of her episodes meaningful oh, because yeah. this show really does honor like her option to refuse. Yeah. And it doesn't characterize refusal as a lack of participation in the narrative. And I feel like there's like this thing in a lot of stories where people have this trauma or have this refusal and the story operates on that character the way men harass women. That's like, oh, you have to harass a woman until she dates you. Mm. There's this inevitability to the story that people play in these normative dynamics that feels similar where it's like, if a character's resistant or has negative emotions, the story is going to harass that character until they align with the resolution. And Lapis being allowed to have Steven make these requests of her, like, I want you to be friends. I want you to participate in this community and her being able to develop her relationships with them out of her initial refusal to do that. Mm -hmm. And at her own pace and in her own way, like with her own affect. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many things I love about that character, including how much she is not like one of the good mothers (laughs) that the show. There's this one scene I'm thinking of where she can fly and she's, she's holding Steven in the air and he wants to get onto this airplane that's going by and he says just let go of me and she goes okay and she drops him (laughs) like it's not part of her character to be like thinking really hard about what might happen to you there's a way in which that's like part of the show is also demonstrating over and over again that people are telling you what they need and you have to listen to them yeah like when Steven says drop me she drops him when when, (laughs) when Lapis says I need to Pick up this barn. Come take it to the moon. <laughs> yes. Steven's like, it's not what I want, but it's okay. Yeah, <laughs> I guess that's what you have to do. And, and you know, in that part, not to get too into the weeds of the storyline there, but that moment of picking up her eventual home on Earth and taking it off into space, mm. the other gem she's living with, Peridot, is really broken up about it. Yeah, and that's something that the show has room for, too. Like, they have to continue to negotiate that dynamic in their relationship. It it feels very realistic in terms of the ways that relationships really develop. These things that come up between us that we either resolve or don't, they stay in our relationships. And I'm always amazed by the show's ability to convey that complexity. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, just looping back to talking about some of the real traumas that have resulted in the show from, like, these aliens showing up. 
Yeah. I mean, thinking about some of the battles and war stuff that happens later in the show, that's just part of it in that same way. The relationships have to acknowledge and encompass and include memories of trauma and hurt. Right. And I think the show, it's not saying that you have to avoid talking about that or numb that fall. It's like that's part of the circumstances that result in connection and joy. Yeah. I mean, I guess the word that comes to my mind is integration, right? Like, yeah, like not splitting off like this is the good part of our history. This is the bad part of our history. This is the part I never want to feel again. And this is the part I want to feel all the time. It's like, it's all here. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm sorry to bring up the Owen Collie from Xenogenesis again, <laughs> but it just does make me wonder about the queer Owen Collie. Yeah. Because we have the queer gems here on Earth manifesting this complexity in that part of the reason we can't say all gems are bad is because there are some gems that are these awesome queer revolutionaries that showed up to defend the Earth and give the finger to the system that they came up in and like, hey, we want to figure out this other way to be. And when we look at the gems, we can't see that as a monolithic society because we've gotten to meet all of these specific people. Even as... I think that there is, you know, a really interesting meditation happening with some some nodes of connection to whiteness where the gems are often kind of unaware of or not thinking hard enough about their own power and the ways that their actions and history affect human lives. And like Rose Quartz, when we kind of see her and Greg in flashback, there's a lot of kind of amazing stuff that is very believable about that relationship. And also she's sort of objectifying and infantilizing him a lot of the time. And there's a sense of her sort of fetishization of humans. Like I feel like there's a lot of complexity of that portrayal of like the good gems too. Mm, Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that is really interesting. Race is really interesting in Steven Universe. It's interesting to me that it's never explicitly brought up. And I'm thinking about this because we brought up Butler, where race is an explicit element of the storytelling. And it's part of the foundational groundwork of how the characters understand each other, which is part of why it feels so like human and true in a way that a lot of science fiction doesn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in Steven Universe, it's like we have a multiracial ensemble cast, Mm -hmm. but there is never a place to acknowledge race as impacting people's lives the way it would in a town on the Jersey Shore. Right. And I was thinking about this specifically with Stephen's relationship with Connie. Yeah. Because thinking of Stephen as like a homeschooled white boy, basically, Mm -hmm. that's a big burden on a woman of color as his friend Mm -hmm. to not only socialize him with the other kids that she is friendly with from school and extracurriculars, sports, but also she would have to tell him race is a thing and people are going to react very differently to her than they would to him. Yeah, I mean, especially because sometimes the two of them meld bodies and become jointly a person of color. Yeah. Is it a critique of Steven Universe? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I know so many people of color who feel very seen by the show. And I don't know, it makes me realize like, we've been talking so much about what a queer show it is, but like it never mentions gender or sexuality explicitly either, even though it's like obsessed with butch femme dynamics. (laughs) And I think that is maybe about the way that the show kind of ends up speaking in these metaphors that 
don't quite line up and that's part of why they work. Yeah, it's interesting just like just saying like how it doesn't map because I, I mean, I think in some ways that's a testament to the world building mm. in that it's dealing with these ideas, but it's not creating an echo or a clear one-to-one relationship with actual historical narratives. Right. Garnet is maybe a good example because she reads as a black woman and she's played by a black actress. And it feels really significant that this show puts a queer black woman at the center of the show, at the center of the team. Mm -hmm. She's the leader of the Crystal Gems. But then her blackness is never named. And I think, you know, partly that's because of the world building because she's an alien from outer space. And where she comes from, her experience as a marginalized person is not about blackness. I don't know, it's making me think about the ways in which this show does storytelling and lesson learning, like almost refracted through the identity of the person that's looking. And I'm thinking about that because like, I feel like as a white watcher, like I want to acknowledge it's a place of comfort for me to like have this representation without ever acknowledging it because of white supremacy culture. (laughs) Like, And yeah, there are things about Stephen's whiteness that feel just like the whiteness of other white boys and yet are sort of treated as a special specialness. The moments when I've been mad at this show have been moments when I've been mad at that specific thing. And they've been also mapped onto moments when I've been most frustrated with my own whiteness and sense of self-importance. And there are ways in which Stephen gets to be this sort of like flower on which all of this love is lavished. And I think sometimes that there's a sense in me that like as a white boy, there's no way that he can really deserve it. And that there's sort of something wrong with reveling in that fantasy of deserving it. And I think the the, the like good, bad splitting of that <laughs> is yeah. a little mm-hmm. bit of a, of a red flag for me that that is about something that is really an obstacle to getting anywhere with trying to unlearn some of the, the white supremacist cultural instructions that are very much part of how I operate and think, which this idea that, you know, self-annihilation is going to do it. Like hating yourself is going to get you out of this. Right. <laughs> like, it's not. <laughs> Nothing is. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So there's so much more we could say about the show and we're going to have to cut ourselves off a little bit. So I wanted to ask Nat, who do you identify with in Steven Universe? <laughs> well, obviously I love this question so much. I have put much thought into it. <laughs> And well, I actually, I didn't have to put that much thought into it because I strongly identify with Peridot. <laughs> I mean, there's so many reasons. I really love Peridot because, you know, I, I was talking about Steven being unschooled and what that's like. And I will say, like, I share so much of that experience that Steven had of parenting and growing up. But like you said, it really depends on your bubble. Mm-hmm. And the bubble I came from was not as beautiful, magical, and nurturing as the one that Stephen grew up in. And I, as a teenager and young adult, was a lot like mm, Paradox. In what way? Like, mean and insecure and rigid and someone that was really, really confused mm. and trying to learn. And someone who was trying to figure out learning, but always maintaining safety. Mm. And I feel like uncomfortably seen by her, like just the way she shouts Claude at people all the time. <laughs> yeah. It's just, I mean, it reminds me of like myself as like a really uncomfortable kid, like lashing out to keep people mm. away mm. a little bit. And her story arc of being that way 
and then gradually kind of opening up and creating her own value structure. You know, the way she does end up bonding with her life partner, which is Lapis, or not necessarily life partner, but for now (laughs) partner. And like, one of my favorite things about Peridot is she shows up, she's totally this asshole who seems kind of like a super Mm -hmm. nerd, because she has all this technology, and she's like a technological gem. And for a while, she's kind of like set back by the fact that she has these like limb extenders and like this device that lets her do all this seemingly like space internet enabled hacking and stuff. And then like she loses all of that in her kind of conflicts with the gems. And she's like, oh, like my life sucks now. I don't have this technology. And she comes across as an engineer. Mm-hmm. But then like later, the show is like, engineers can be artists. Mm. And I'm like, I feel so seen yeah. because. That's like been like my life trajectory in my career and in how I've learned not to be rigid and scared, Mm. like through me, you know? (laughs) Oh, that makes so much sense. Yeah. I wanted to ask you the same question, though. Who do you identify with? I mean, Steven, yeah. And when I think about that identification, I mean, there's multiple levels there, right? Like one of the big things about Steven and one of the big things about the show generally, but like specifically Steven is fat and Steven's fatness, it's like celebrated without being fetishized. Steven takes so much joy in his body and feels at home in it, sees it as this vessel of pleasure and the show sees it as this vessel of pleasure And I also think, you know, Stephen's body is also really interesting because, of course, he's also a gem. And so it's not quite a human body. It it makes me think of this one particular episode that's Stephen's 14th birthday. And we learn that he hasn't aged since he was about 11. Right. Yeah. Which is like very trans mask. (laughs) Like this like (laughs) terrifying moment when you're like, oh shit, am I going to be a little boy forever? (laughs) Oh my God. 100% yes. Can confirm. Like you are permanently the little brother of everybody. Oh my God. So, you know, but also just think there's something very, very trans (laughs) about this fear that you're not going to be able to grow with the cis people that you love. Mm, yeah that that there's these people who are like going through this sort of like chrononormative experience of childhood and and growing into adulthood steven specifically worried about connie right she's younger than him and she's growing at this sort of normal human pace and he's like are you going to be like 33 and i'm still going to look 14 and like we can't hang you know i think this is a thing that a lot of trans people experience like am i gonna have to stay in this kind of physical and emotional adolescence for so much longer and what's that going to do to me and what's that going to do to my relationships that I have to like constantly be and for such a long time be figuring out who I am physically as well as like constantly being there emotionally because I think sometimes something we don't really talk that much about with the ways that it is to live in a body where you have to work so hard to figure out what it is yes that takes a really long time and and I think Steven as a character as this hybrid gem human body that's something that's really present for him as he's kind of trying to figure out his way like there's all kinds of cool exploration like it's amazing and magical but there's a possibility of loss and of difference and of like maybe an unbridgeable difference like what if the way that my body is is going to make you not want to be around me <laughs> yeah we're going to make our relationship impossible yeah so so i think there are many ways that i that i relate to him but that's kind of one of the even even though you know we're kind of talking about him as this sort of paradigmatic white boy i think his boyness is is really complicated by that kind of hybrid body that he has and this mother jewel that he has buried in his belly button and all the ways that his body is 
is unknowable, not just for himself as a person, but also all the adults around him, all the kids around him, nobody else can tell him what, what it would mean for him to grow up. Yeah, nobody knows. All of his parents are like, we'll just have to find out, you know, Mm. like and but there is that moment of him like stressing about that but then he also generally seems excited about just finding out you know yeah and again with the sort of utopian ethic of this show is like we're gonna acknowledge like this is scary at times and that there's a potential for real loss here and for disconnection and grief and where we're gonna settle is play and pleasure yeah and i think that that's something that i am still in the process of trying to learn with my own body, how to sort of learn it through play. Mm, I'm so fucking excited to hear you say that. It's, it's just, I don't know, it gives me the kind of feeling of hope and exploration and complexity that I get from the show. Yeah. And maybe, I mean, thinking about this idea of like the, the sort of yawning chasm of possible loss and turning toward play and pleasure as like a way through it, and into it, it makes me think about something that like, I can just say I have struggled. I've struggled with all season long. As I know, you know, like we, mm-hmm. we kind of launched into the season to talk about escape and wanting to talk about trauma and wanting to talk about grief. And it's 2021, 2022. And this year has been so hard for so many of us, you know, in so many ways, the hits keep coming and we are all already down. Yep. And that energy, you know, or lack thereof is something that I know I've been struggling with. And I know a lot of people in my life have been struggling with. And I think part of it, you know, we were talking to Franny Choi about grief, and we were talking a little bit about the sort of brightness of grief in the first flush of a huge loss and how that energy can dissipate, which is something that I feel so intimately familiar with. Mm. And that sort of possibility of 2020 kind of giving way to the inevitable confusion of the world not totally changing and and in many ways just barely changing or changing for the worse and all of these really, really hard things that we're all contending with. And this show is one of the places that I go for comfort. And I'm wondering, like, I don't know about that utopianism and revolution and play <laughs> and whether there's something there for us in terms of, like, how we approach just what it's like to be here right now, you know, no longer in this sort of moment of of scintillating grief and in this place after, which is in some ways so much harder. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about the Arundhati Roy quote having to do with the idea of the pandemic as a portal. Yeah. And that was everywhere in 2020, this amazing essay by Arundhati Roy, where she talks about the pandemic as a portal and this sort of like, moment of decision to step through and like, do you step through dragging the corpse of the bad institutions of the past? Or do you let it go and step through into something else? And and not knowing what that something else is. (laughs) Yeah. And that's such a powerful image. And I'm wondering if on my own part as well, there is an element of feeling like there is this one side and then I would step through the portal into this other side through this really difficult process of grieving, but then having arrived somewhere. Mm. And maybe part of what we're contending with is it's not that clear of a metaphor. It's not that clear of a process. That idea is something that we want and need to hold on to. Mm. 
but it's an idea that we're moving towards or we're moving towards in 2020. It's one truth, but not the only truth of what has happened and what is happening. Oh, yeah. I, and when you are are talking, I'm just realizing like, man, I think often there's a an idea of loss, like really big grief as that kind of like dividing line. And that's never actually been what grief feels like. In my experience, there's, you know, months, years of feeling like an alien on the planet. Like I, I used to, I used to say it felt like being a tourist, <laughs> you know, like grieving, like you're just like, you're walking through Central Park and it's like, you've never been there before. And you sort of expect it to feel that way forever. And there's a way in which you want it to feel that way forever because, because everything is new, you know? Yep. Yep. But then you, you're not a tourist actually, you know, you're, you're, you're a refugee. Like you live here. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah. Ugh, I'm thinking now about all these connections with things we've talked about this season. And I'm just thinking about this idea of remaining. Mm. I guess just like this sense of escape being a temptation. Mm. And part of it is the temptation of abandoning problems, the temptation of whiteness. And in our conversations throughout this season, we have not tried to demonize the idea of escape. But I think we've also secretly been talking about remaining as well as escaping. Yeah. You know, we're always talking about these narratives of like escaping human culture on Earth. Steven Universe, it's really just like, there's just something so intensely like just resonant for me about the recognition that the Earth itself is is like a place you would escape to. Yes. And I think just like bringing it back to this moment in 2020 to climate change and COVID and the kinds of big grief that we've been talking about in this season on escape. Mm -hmm. The thing about really big grief is like, it doesn't go away. (laughs) You know, I mean, people say that sometimes, sometimes they're like time heals all wounds. And (laughs) and other times they're like, you know, it's never going to go away. And that's true. And I think staying with it is, is the reality. Like, you know, you can't actually not stay with it. And so the idea of sort of taking on staying <laughs> as like a practice of, of of pleasure and joy and play and possibility instead of running from it all the time, there's something in that that makes me feel really free. <laughs> it's so freeing. I love it. I have no, I have no further comments. <laughs> <laughs> This has been Queers at the End of the World. This was our last episode for season two. Listeners, we love you. We've got some huge, beautiful ideas and big shifts coming in season three, and we can't wait to share them with you. In the meantime, keep telling us what's meaningful for you about Queers at the End of the World, what you want to see more of, and what you want to hear us talk about in season three. Our show art is by the fabulous Ellie Yanagasawa. Get in touch for your own commission at Ellie the Cosmic Jelly. The music for this episode is La Fin des Ericotes by Tintamare. The show is produced and edited by me, Nino McQuown, with marketing and technical wizardry by Nat Mesnard. We'd love to hear from you. Find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash queers at the end of the world. Our website is queerworlds.com, and you can email us directly at queerworldspodcast at gmail.com. <laughs>